You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Emily Casanova, who is a recent addition to the neuroscience program in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Loyola University, New Orleans. With a background in psychology, anatomy, and neurobiology, Dr. Casanova's research focuses on autism, including its connections to hereditary connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. In the study of major autism susceptibility genes, Dr. Casanova, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. So I love to be able to just give a background because oftentimes falling into the field of studying autistic disorder or servicing on the treatment side of autistic disorder, there's there's either a passion or an interest that sparked that uh, path of uh, research. But tell us a little bit of how you got into this field. So um, it's been a while now. Wow. Um, it was my I was in my early 20s and um, I was attending undergrad and um, I uh, I was taking some abnormal psych classes and things like that. And um, uh, just at that time, there happened to be an advertisement um, asking for undergrads who might be interested in learning how to do some ABA therapy um, with young, young, young autistic kiddos. Um, and so that was with First Steps of Missouri. And um, I, has, I suspect probably the requirements have changed since then, but at least back in the day, um, even if as long as you were a psychology student, they were asking for people to come in and kind of do part-time stuff. And so, um, so I kind of got started in in that area. I really only worked with one child consistently for 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 a long time, um, and uh, absolutely adored him. He was a fantastic kiddo who's now an adult now. Um, always hard to believe that now, um, but you know, got got along great with his family and really enjoyed working with him. And um, and it, it just kind of went on from there. Um, you know, I started. Um, noticing some of the similar traits in my family and people that I know and some of my own issues. And so it just kind of, you know, um, you know, I just became very vested, not only for the people that I've come to know and also love. And and um, but um, then I just realized that studying autism was also a fascinating way to study the human condition in general right um i i always like to say and my husband always would say this as well in his own work if you're studying autism you're studying the entire human condition and um and so um it's just been a passion of mine for the last 20 years um, and uh, I've, I initially was in more of the psychology component, but then moved more towards the neurobiology for grad school. Um, and then after graduate school, became much more interested in genetics. Um, and then I will also say for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, I kind of stumbled into that. Um, it's a, a, again, it's a group of hereditary connective tissue disorders. So essentially people who can be pretty bendy. <laughs> so they may have hypermobility and some other features. And um, it was actually through my own diagnosis um, and integrating into part of the online patient community that I started noticing, wow, there are a lot of people talking about autism here. And I'm like, 
that's great. I'm an autism researcher, right? So it was kind of fortuitous. Um, you know, not that I'm grateful I have a connective tissue disorder. However, it was kind of like, you know, right time, right place. And um, and so this was something that a lot of people weren't really studying yet. And so um, it's kind of been an open field. Um, but I hope more people do continue to join because um, it's clearly something that's affecting a lot of people on the spectrum. And it's it sounds like it's a question that a lot of autistics are asking right now, as yes. are people that are diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Yes. And it's one, as soon as the community starts asking this question, you know, the research world should start diving yes. into it. Yeah. I love the way that you looked at kind of, you know, studying of autistic disorder being a study of the human condition. Um, because I think as a, as a society is that the best way for us to a provide an opportunity for self-awareness, self-advocacy, mm -hmm. but also being able to build a community that supports inclusion and mm -hmm. awareness and acceptance and just a, a way to empower everyone in the community mm -hmm. is that it starts with understanding all of these components. Yeah. Um, so how does genetics play a role in somebody's uh, autistic identity or autistic traits? Right. So that's always the big question, isn't it, right? Um, it's It's got a complicated answer, and I'm gonna try to break it down um, as simply as possible without taking you through a genetics course, right? So um, for a lot of people, first off, there definitely seems to be a hereditary component, right? Um, maybe mom or dad or both, are kind of on or near the spectrum. That varies by the family, right? Sometimes that's not the case. Um, but we more often see traits throughout the family, maybe not full-blown autism, but we can start to see some features. Um, so for a subset of folks on the autism spectrum, um, especially ones who may fall in that end where you have more profoundly affected people, um, you may have more significant intellectual disability um, that co-occurs with the autism. Um, you know, more often you're going to find perhaps a single gene mutation or maybe a single chromosomal abnormality that is largely responsible for their condition. So those are the simplest ones that we can kind of talk about and then kind of kind of put to the side, right? Those are the easy ones, I hate to say it. Um, they can be the most severe symptomatically, um, but more often genetically, um, it, it's a little easier to figure out what might've been going on. Maybe it's something that was passed down. Uh, sometimes we see a pattern where um, mom has that variant, um, but for whatever reason, um, there often is a, a protective effect in terms of sex. So females tend to be a little bit less affected when those kind of variants pop up. But then if it's passed down to a male child, you may suddenly start to see a more severe expression. Um, so that's one pattern that we can sometimes see. Um, you know, other times it's just, it's new, right? It's, it's happened in the egg or the sperm, and it's not something that mom or dad have in the rest of the cells of their body. And, um, and more often we're going to see, um, a single case in the family, right? So those, those singletons, um, then we've got some of the more complicated stuff a little further up that spectrum where you start looking at 
potentially multiple genetic factors all playing each a little role, but added together, right? And so that's where you start looking at families that have variations on those traits that are kind of popping up throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes one kiddo just happens to get a larger amount or the wrong combination. Um, and you end up seeing a more severely affected person, whereas the siblings, maybe they're a little further up the spectrum or maybe they have ADHD or learning disability or, you know, so we, we see it's a whole rainbow effect at that point. And, and those are the folks that we have a much harder time figuring out, you know, tracing back because then you're talking about, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight, ten different variants that you've got to account for together. Um, and while we do have supercomputers, sometimes they're not quite super enough to be able to figure that out and across a broader population of folks. So that's the genetic component. Mm-hmm. It's not always 100% genetic as well. Um, yeah. There can be environmental influences too. So a classic example would be some kind of maternal infection during pregnancy. So you may have a combination of weak genetic factors, but pair that together then with some kind of infection because the immune system can play a big role in autism mm-hmm. too. And boom, suddenly you you have an autistic child. Um, so it can get really complicated, um, yeah. but there are general trends that we can see in different parts of the spectrum. And there's so many hereditary conditions that have already been identified that have Huge. comorbidity with autistic disorder. And yeah. one of the ones, and and this is where your specialty comes into play, is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And right. if I if I read this correctly, and this is where you can definitely to tell me, no, Jeff, this is not what I, what I'm sure. writing, but we're looking at two percent ish of the population might mm. be somewhere might might have Ehlers Danlos syndrome, but within that autistic population, mm-hmm. and especially when we were talking about mothers who identify autistic or who have a hereditary condition, that bumps up to twenty percent. Yeah. So what we were seeing with our Ehlers Danlos population, um, when moms had um, EDS or or it. Ehlers-Danlos also kind of happens on a spectrum. So there's a hypermobility spectrum disorders that kind of bleeds into. Um, so we usually call it EDS slash HSD. So hypermobility spectrum disorders to kind of give the impression that it's um, it's not a single condition. It's, it's complicated too, of course. Um, but yeah, so we're seeing that in um, moms who have this Ehlers-Danlos spectrum condition, um, we're seeing about 20% of them reporting having autistic kids, which is comparable, um, as you were kind of saying, to moms who don't have EDS but who have autism. And so it's a similar susceptibility factor, um, maternal susceptibility factor for autism in the kiddos. Um, so, yeah, um, it's it, there's a big jump. So we're not necessarily always seeing EDS and autism together in the same person, although that definitely can happen. Um, but we may be seeing them traveling together in the same families. Okay. And I mean, and these are things that obviously is that as you're starting to see statistics like this, it it yeah. pushes to the need for additional research. Yes. Um, but maybe you can give us just a little bit of understanding of 
all of the components that you'd be seeing with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and maybe just some of the common symptoms that might Mm -hmm. overlap with autism. So you start to kind of draw that picture a little bit that, you know, sometimes this is existing within the same child or sometimes both these things are occurring and you don't really tease it out without a genetic test. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and that's exactly like you say, we've got different physicians that are diagnosing these conditions and kiddos with autism are not necessarily always seeing the right physician to be able to catch the possibility of a connective tissue disorder in addition. Um, so in autism, especially in the pediatrics realm, um, they're much more likely to look at features um, like musculoskeletal features um, that may be, you know, focus more on like hypotonia, low muscle tone, right? Which we often see in association with these hypermobility disorders, but they're not looking to see necessarily how bendy is that child, right? How 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 much can they bend themselves into a pre or flex their elbows backwards or those kind of things. Um, You know, they're a little bit more focused traditionally on muscle function with the assumption that this is a top-down influence from the central nervous system, right, from the brain. Um, and, And we're saying that, yes, that could be the case, um, but it's not necessarily just the case, right? Because low tone very often follows hypermobility. Um, And so um, that can often get missed. Um, Probably some of the best people to do an Ehlers-Danlos assessment, the ones who have been trained um, are geneticists. Um, So traditionally Ehlers-Danlos has kind of been under their purview. Rheumatologists can potentially also do it too. However, I've tended to notice that rheumatology has, on average, not every rheumatologist, but on average, um, rheumatology is not overly thrilled with the broadening of the Ehlers-Danlos concept, and they tend to prefer not to give diagnoses, which doesn't really help at that point. Um, So I tend to recommend um, a genetics clinic when possible. You don't even, it isn't even necessary to try and do uh, genetic testing at that rate. You you want the physical assessment. And these happen to be the physicians that are normally trained for those kind of things. Um, that kind of brings in a problem, though, because a lot of genetic centers are starting to move away from accepting referrals for Ehlers-Danlos and related conditions because they're getting so many. And most of the time, Um, Ehlers-Danlos can't be seen on a gene panel. Um, There are about 14 different um, versions, subtypes. The most common one is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos that makes up probably about 90% of the entire Ehlers-Danlos population. Um, And this is the one that's probably not rare. It's probably more common. It's just not commonly diagnosed. The other ones are rare. A lot of times they are going to turn up on a specific genetics panel for Ehlers-Danlos, and so they're still accepting referrals for those. But Mm -hmm. the hypermobile EDS, some of the genetic centers are moving away from that, which puts people in a dilemma of where do I go to get my child or myself diagnosed? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think at that we need to um, move some of the assessment training out to even just PCPs who are willing to do it. Um, you know, because it's not it's not a challenging assessment process to learn. I'm not a clinician and I've learned it for the purposes of research. If I can learn it, pretty much anybody can learn it. So, um, you know, so I think we we do need to move in that direction because we're kind of 
we have this burgeoning interest in Ehlers-Danlos um, and hypermobility spectrum disorders and a group, a community of physicians that are moving away from trying to diagnose it. So that's an additional problem. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, as I was as I was looking through some of the information that you've put out there, mm-hmm. is that uh, some of the big red flags that struck me immediately mm-hmm. are the things that could create harm if we're not observing, if we're not knowing what's going on, or we don't know the why. And right. some of those are um, the dysregulation, whether that's the immune or the autonomic. So mm-hmm. being able to self self-calm, being able to regulate. I mean, you're seeing yeah. self-injury in an autistic yes. disorder. You're also seeing the inability to self-soothe at times. Yes. And those those seem aligned. And then the mm-hmm. the immu- uh, the uh, dysregulation with immunity is that if, you, if I know this in advance, then I can maybe create environments that are going to be mm-hmm. better suited for yes. an individual where they're not going to be affected by so many of the environments and, and kind of the pollutants or anything that's occurring yes. within the natural environment. Right. Are there other things that we should be aware of that are a little bit more of the, you know, these are catch them now so that you can inform yourself so that you don't run into long-term problems? Right. So, um, you know, if you do have someone that seems to be on that Ehlers-Danlos spectrum, um, you know, when they're children, oftentimes the hypermobility is not really much of a problem. Maybe they're a little bit clumsy. Um, you know, maybe they're not great at sports, things like that. Or maybe they are. It can vary. Um, but um, long-term overextension of those joints definitely causes damage. So as an adult, you may end up seeing earlier disab- physical disability um, as a result of that. Um, with Ehlers-Danlos, um, we, we often see um, cervical spinal issues. Um, so the neck is a big place um, where we see a lot of problems. And if you are experiencing anything that can change um, pressure within the central nervous system because it's 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 kind of encapsulated right and and so um there's there's barriers or boundaries between the central nervous system and the peripheral body and um and so sometimes you can have a leak leaks within the um, spinal spinal region that that can be very bad and it's very hard to identify and that can cause very weird neurological symptoms um, which are not always caught um, other times, maybe there's increased pressure. And again, that can cause other symptoms. Um, you know, and, and all of these can potentially arise due to um, problems around the neck region. Um, and so I do recommend to, to avoid chiropractics um, for anyone. There, there are dangers that, that um, uh, certainly for any person, even not on this spectrum, that can be problematic. But definitely people who have these connective tissue disorders um, really need to stay well away from chiropractics um, simply because it's easier to cause damage. Um, and you could potentially completely incapacitate that person. So, um, you know, but it's always good to, um, you know, kind of keep an eye on some of those. If there's a symptom that has arisen suddenly, like a neurological symptom that's very sudden, um, you know, that could be something to talk to a neurologist about and say, hey, you know, I noticed my child is pretty bendy or my teenager is pretty bendy, uh, but all of a sudden they're complaining of these really bad headaches and they're nauseous and, you know, and, and um, 
or or all of a sudden they've got tingling in one arm and they're not really being able to use it very well or their their legs aren't working suddenly very well um and and it can even come and go right mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a constant symptom um those can all be keys um that that we see um a worsening of some of the autonomic stuff like that some of that dysregulation that can be related to the cervical spinal issues as well so somebody who already has those issues um then suddenly can get so much worse simply because something has shifted in their neck and they've damaged something um because everything's got to go through there right it's kind of a bottleneck um, so. And that's where knowledge is power, though. I mean, so you you have a unique background because before you got into the research side of the neuroscience is that you you did some of the practice. Right. So where does this knowledge and the ability to understand a little bit more about the genetic syndromes, where's the marriage with that and maybe some treatment that's out there and empowering families and clinicians to maybe make more informed decisions as they're going through the process, just knowing some of these pieces. Right. Well, I mean, like you were saying before, you know, with at least just with the Ehlers-Danlos and some of these overlapping conditions, um, obviously we've got the connective tissue, the structural component, but then we've got the immune stuff um, for some reason, and we're not entirely certain why that's the case, but a lot of these folks who have these hypermobility-related issues often have major immune problems. Um, You know, they can be chronic. They may not necessarily be really extreme, but even a chronic immune problem, chronic inflammation, that's not good for somebody who's already kind of having a hard time. Um, You know, they, they, it can even cause stuff like brain fog. I mean, if you've got a kid who's often frequently experiencing brain fog, I I mean, you know, even you or I, we're not going to be able to function well with brain fog. It's like feeling sick all the time. Right. And so, um, and, and folks on the spectrum, you know, either maybe they have challenges with language and they may not be able to communicate that very well, or even if they don't have severe issues with language, maybe they have issues with interception and really don't sense their body very well, or it's just something they're so used to, which we, you know, even within Ehlers-Danlos and not autism, you know, I mean, I forget what it's like to not be in pain. That's a normal for me, right? And so when they always ask you that scale of how's your pain today, well, you know, I mean, it's the same as it always is. You know, it's like it's it's not a ten. So that there you go. That's you know, that's kind of so it 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 they you know people can acclimate um, to this sense of what really shouldn't be normal becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, anytime you've got immune stuff, um, we do see a strong relationship with what we call autonomic disorders. Um, so that, you know, that is so the autonomic part of the nervous system, I like to call it the automatic nervous system, and it basically handles all the stuff you don't have to think about, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, like physical movements, that's conscious, right? But the autonomic nervous system that's handling stuff like digestion breathing rate, heart rate, sweating, um, whether your pupils are contracting, you know, any number of things like that. And um, and so we tend to see folks who have these immune problems and these connective tissue problems often have these autonomic disorders where they have what we would call a hypersympathetic activation. And all that means is that your fight and flight branch of your nervous system is really ramped up. It's not, you know, normally there's more of a tango, right? It's kind of back and forth. Whereas folks um, with these issues, 
um, they're more likely to be at this heightened rate of response. Um, and, you know, so you can even tell that by looking at heart rate. Um, that's one thing that I often recommend to parents. If there's a way to kind of keep, you know, an eye on your kid's heart rate every once in a while, maybe off and on throughout the day, um, especially if they're having problems communicating, you don't always know until they hit that 10 that they are really upset, right? Um, sometimes the heart rate can tell you. So if you see that they are at a consistently high heart rate, right, mm -hmm. that means that, that that sympathetic nervous system, that fight and flight is turned on. And yeah. so that brings with it all these other symptoms of heightened awareness and anxiety and sensory issues as well. Um, people with autonomic disorders who don't have autism, when they have a flare, they are very prone to get sensory issues. So visual and auditory seem to be the most common, but you can also get, you know, tactile and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, you've just basically turned everything up, right? Yeah. And you've just got this person who is on edge. They may not look it, but they're experiencing it. So sometimes looking at that heart rate can be a good indicator and be like, okay, all right. Oh, Johnny is definitely getting upset, even though I'm not seeing it let's go take a moment let's go chill let's go cool down let's stim a little let's mm -hmm. let's let this energy out right um and we see that i mean you know there's a lot of autonomic dysregulation and autism in general that's not something that is solely unique to these connective tissue disorders so um i'm a big fan of of these watches granted might be maybe not every kid is trustworthy with an expensive watch but even a little pulse oximeter if they don't mind having it on their finger or if you can do some some training aba wise to get them used to having that little pulse oximeter on their finger and kind of sitting still while they you know while they're getting the reading and it's pretty mm -hmm. quick we've all had that at the doctor's office where they you know slip that little thing on your finger and that'll give you a heart rate um and a good indicator of where they are on that you know that sympathetic um, ladder essentially. Yeah, even as even as you were describing that, I'm just thinking how exhausted. So I mean, being on heightened alert and constantly having that fight or flight going on throughout my system is that that's going to be exhausting. It's going to affect problem solving. It's going to affect uh, yep. language acquisition. It's going to affect everything that you're wanting to be able to focus on because you're at this heightened alert constantly. Mm -hmm. And those practical strategies, mm -hmm. I think as much as even for somebody who who is demonstrating some of those same traits or symptoms mm -hmm. and hasn't yet been diagnosed with a genetic disorder those are all useful strategies yes. um it becomes more impactful if mm -hmm. you know that hey this is what's causing it we know there's a hereditary condition or genetic condition that's causing this right now so let's be on heightened alert so what sort of what sort of other practical strategies do you have for folks that maybe have um a uh intuition that that their child might have a genetic disorder or have gone through the testing process sure. to confirm that when it relies on Ehlers-Danlos uh, syndrome in specific. So, um, so as you said kind of before, there are so many different genetic syndromes that are that are potentially associated with autism. Um, in some of my work, um, and this was more on the computer science side, um, we worked with um, single gene syndromes, right? And um, there were over 60 that had high 
rates of autism. That isn't even counting the ones that have lower rates of autism. So we're talking 20, at least 20% of the people with this particular genetic syndrome have autism, right? And so um, the number of genes that are involved potentially is gigantic, right? Um, but at least the nice thing is they do tend to seem to funnel into some common behavioral issues, right? And so um, there's some stuff that, you know, that we can certainly recommend that we might use in kiddos with Ehlers-Danlos and autism, which, which are still, you know, similarly applicable to folks who aren't on that particular genetic spectrum. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's no one thing other than some of the connective tissue stuff and how that might worsen the behavioral expression or the stress or things like that, where I would say, watch out for this specifically because it's related to the connective tissue thing. Um, you know, the, like we were talking about the autonomic stuff that seems to be pretty common to autism in general. Um, and so it's not solely associated with EDS. Um, as far as some of the other, um, like if, if parents have already are interested in maybe seeking genotyping for their child, um, or they have done it before, but it's been a while. Um, so if you're if you're trying to seek genotyping, one, I would recommend seeking out some of the larger genetic centers. Um, the the person is going to be a better candidate for genotyping. Um, usually, the more severe they are, um, and and by severe, I'm also including the intellectual disability aspect, or if there's really some global developmental delay and and stuff that's more significant. Even more so if they have physical features that are somewhat unique and possibly indicative of a genetic syndrome. Um, if there are effects to the face that are apparent, and sometimes they can be subtle, sometimes they can be obvious, it really varies. Um, if there are variations, say, to the hands or the feet, the length of the limbs, maybe they've got internal issues, not just solely the gut thing, but also if there are heart problems or you know some of the other organs are also affected, like maybe the function of the kidneys, they're better candidates for genotyping um, because we're, we're pretty good at finding the rare stuff um, because it's rare, right? Because we know, okay, it doesn't happen in people who don't have this condition and it does happen in those who do, right? Um, and so usually the rarer um, a, a, a genetic variation is, um, usually the more severe the effects tend to be on the person. Um, so we don't see them quite as often, but then, um, there's a lot of rare diseases out there, right? Like one in 10 people have rare diseases. So, um, you know, uh, that's that's always something good to get checked out. If you feel like your kiddo is, you know, kind of you're checking a lot of those marks as far as physical features, more severe on the, you know, the expression, definitely intellectual disability or maybe more severe seizures, um, you know, any number of those things in combination um, they're probably a better candidate for genetic testing if they haven't already been sent there. I would hope mm -hmm. that pediatricians would be like, ooh, red flag, but that doesn't always happen, you know, yeah. and it varies by location and services, you know, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, pediatricians are overworked and overwhelmed and they're just not looking for it, right? So um, on the other hand, um, 
if you've already been through genetic testing in the past, but it's been a few years, I would say um, if you're not having regular, um, you know, meetings like once a year with the geneticists or somebody at the genetics clinic, I would reach back out and also um, ask, especially if, if um, your child or your family member has received a result that is called a VUS. It's, it's um, a variant of unknown significance. We know it's rare. We don't know what it's doing. It might be part of the autism. It might not be. But as we learn more, as more things are published over time, um, maybe that variant of unknown significance has turned into a variant of known significance in the mm -hmm. meantime. So if you don't also then reach back out and say, hey, do you know, is this still a VUS? And if it is, okay, right, we keep waiting. But if not, you know, hey, maybe my child actually has a syndrome that's primary where the autism is actually secondary. It's, it's a secondary symptom. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be my best recommendation as far as getting genetic testing. Um, if, if your child doesn't meet those criteria, as long as they're willing to do the testing and you're not horrifically torturing them by trying to get a blood sample or, or, or a saliva sample, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's okay, you know, and if you don't mind paying, I don't know if insurance is going to probably cover it, um, but if you if you have the money and you don't mind paying, it can be worthwhile. Every once in a while, you do see something rare up on the other end of the spectrum. Um, it's just going to be less, much less frequent. So, yeah. But even as you look at this and you look at the participants and some of the research and being able to be, it's almost, a, and it's kind of a weird concept, but it's almost like paying it forward at times is yes. that maybe it's not affecting the immediate treatment of what you're going through as a family, but others are going through that same journey and others will go through it. And the more information that we're able to gather, the yeah. better we're going to be at being able to create an environment and a life and opportunity for yeah. everyone, regardless of what their genetic composition is. Exactly. What do you say to researchers? Because, I, I mean, we're, we're trying to get those participants to be able to help be a part of what's going on, to be okay. able to help better inform. Mm -hmm. But where do the research, where, where would your hope be? It's like, hey, where's, what's next? So um, I got a couple of different avenues. Um, as far as Ehlers-Danlos, I just hope we get more researchers interested. Um, you know, it's it's there's a few that are slowly coming on board, but with the extent that this seems to be affecting the community, um, I, I I want it I want it to go faster, right? Because the more I mean, I love being a, a leading uh, person within this subfield. However. Um, it, it's it's a lot of responsibility. It's not something that one person or one laboratory can do. And um, and I'm always going to be limited and biased by my own perceptions. And so there's going to be things that maybe I would have never thought to study, and somebody else does. So we need more we need more researchers coming into this field and wanting to study this overlap between autism and Ehlers-Danlos and and these other spectrum conditions. So um, that's one thing um and i and i think it's starting to change but it, it's trickling right um you know the other area is um genetics is just so complicated and definitely the more you know the more samples that we get from people who have donated to things like 
um, Safari at Simon's Foundation, um, the more knowledge um, we're going to have. Um, and we were, I know we were talking a little bit earlier too, before um, before the, the the podcast interview started, um, about especially getting minority groups represented. Um, you know, we have um, a lot of white Americans within the Safari database, and that's fantastic. That's wonderful that we can study them so thoroughly. Um, but there's more of a, a comparative dearth of African Americans and other Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans, etc. Et um, and while some genetic variants are going to be related to autism, no matter what background, um, there are going to be some of some others, especially some of the weaker variations, the ones that you may have to add together with a few other things before you really start seeing autism. Um, those are more likely to vary a little bit more across different populations. So like we were talking about a particular variant, which I'm not going to specify because we haven't published it yet, but a particular variant in the African-American community that we're seeing in autism in a fairly large number, even though the sample is somewhat small at the moment. Um, and it is very significantly associated with autism, whereas the exact same variant in the European derived people, the white people, we're not seeing that association. It's actually common in in their background. Um, so there's something that is a little bit different in in the African American background. It does not seem to be working very well in combination of something else, right? Whereas in the you know the European American background, it's okay. There's probably some other variants that have accommodated it right but have not necessarily always been inherited because we do see um you know we do see a certain amount of admixture of mixing of course between our populations and for whatever reason they've in, you know, they've more frequently inherited this one variant but maybe not the other stuff that makes it not so bad um so that's when you really need um to study at these population levels these subpopulation levels because um Autism is autism and it's autism the world over, but it's ridiculously heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And some of the variations, some of those genetic variations are gonna be different across different populations. Um, so um, so we definitely need more of those minorities represented. Um, and I know there's a complicated history or, or variety of histories with medical research and some of these minority communities and that's a that's a tough ask i know yeah. um but ultimately it's for the best for those communities in particular you're you're helping yourself out um and your neighbors out by doing that so yeah, each time each time i have a guest on and we talk about some of these nuances and and some of the new findings it's yeah. i figure you know there's there's so much to learn there's so much i don't know there's so much out there that we still need to explore yeah. and um Dr. Casanova, I appreciate all that you have done, and I appreciate you taking time today to be able to kind of walk us through some of these findings. And if there is a time in the near future where we can talk about some of these disparities of understanding cultural genetics, yeah, we will definitely have you back on. <laughs> I, I will. I will. Once I've got this one article I'm waiting for, that's at it's at a particular journal. I won't say it, but it's kind of been sat on for a little while um they're having trouble finding reviewers because it's such a niche area mm -hmm. um but um i will definitely pop you an email once that's once that's in press um and if it's a topic you're interested in we can definitely talk about it 
Well, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.